from Luminary and Built It Productions, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, the story of Josh Silverman and Etsy. When I arrived, our stock was at $10. We had $2.50 a share of cash in the bank, and we had a lot of people circling. I would have assigned maybe a 10% chance at that point to the, the, the likelihood that we could remain an independent company. How a young CEO built a reputation as a fixer in the tech industry, from Evite to eBay to Skype and then Etsy. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. So crisis management, as you've probably noticed, is a major theme on this show. Successful CEOs aren't just great cheerleaders or decision makers. They keep a steady hand in times of crisis. And in fact, most of the CEOs and leaders I've interviewed for this show live for crisis and, of course, how to navigate and then solve those crises. And Josh Silverman is no different. When he was made CEO of Etsy in 2017, vultures were circling overhead as they watched the distressed company fall deeper into trouble. At the time, analysts believe Etsy wouldn't survive much longer as an independent company, if it survived at all. But if you'd put $1,000 into Etsy stock at that time in March of 2017, by March of 2019, just two years later, that stock would be worth close to $7,000. So what happened? How did Josh Silverman lead a turnaround at Etsy? Well, he had a lot of time to learn from the crises and recoveries he saw at places like eBay and Skype. But even before that, very early in his career, Josh found himself right at ground zero of the dot-com crisis as the young CEO of Evite. And he got there in a roundabout way. At the time, and this is 1998, he had just quit a prestigious job at a medical device company. And Josh started to tinker with a website idea called Together that would help organize people who wanted to host events. That was scary because, I mean, I'm this fancy guy who's graduated from Stanford Business School and I'm in this fancy job and, you know, my parents are proud of me. And suddenly I go and I quit. And now I'm someone who's sitting in my apartment looking at my computer saying, oh, gosh, what am I going to do now? Yeah. And my saving grace is I told absolutely everyone what my idea was. And so the only alternative to success was a really public and humiliating failure. (laughs) 
But what I got from telling everyone about this idea is I got good market info. So one of my friends said, hey, you know, um, th- there's this company called Oodleworks Software that has Alan Selena, and they seem to have this thing called Evite that's kind of similar. And Evite was really closely aligned with my together business plan. Um, and so we all met up and decided to join forces and hmm. lightning struck. So um, you, so you, I think at the age of 29 or 30, you become the CEO yes. of, of Evite. Yes. Uh, I mean, this is a really significant leadership role for you, I guess, probably the first really significant leadership role. Yeah. I mean, it became that. It didn't feel that when we started, the office was barely big enough for the four of us. And, you know, in the early days, like if somebody sent an Evite, like a chime went off and we would like get really excited. Mm-hmm. You know, once every five hours or 10 hours, one Evite would get created. Yeah. I, I think that the probably people listening who know a little bit about the story of Evite, but but the basic outline is that it, it was sort of launched in 1998. By 2001, it was sold. Yeah. The company begins before it's sort of the dot-com bubble, and it just ends with the crash, right, with the yeah. bubble bursting. Um, what what happened? Why? I mean, you think of Evite as a pretty well-known brand today. Why, why, why did it have to be sold? The, there were two things going on there. One is that, that it's a cultural change in terms of sending a digital invitation for an event. Um, remember, not everyone back then had email. The second thing is that it works a lot better for bigger events than small events. So where we kind of struggled was you didn't really feel like you needed Evite for a six-person dinner party. It was a lot better if 20 people were going to go on a ski trip. Yeah. And how often do you have a 20-person event? Once a year. Yeah. Twice a year. So we we could see that we were going to grow at a certain rate. It was going to be a predictable rate. Um, And I sat down with my investors actually in December of 1999 and laid out the case for I think we should actually sell the company because this is kind of how I project that things are going to go. And it feels like the valuation we could get to sell it is higher than than what I think the discounted cash flow is, you know, what I think the company is eventually going to be worth. I had no idea that the bubble was going to burst. We just felt richly valued. But I handled that conversation too cavalierly in hindsight. I did it kind of over dinner without a spreadsheet and data, sort of friend to friend. Yeah. And your investors are your investors. They're your boss. They're not your friend. And I needed to handle that conversation differently and with with a higher level of data and intensity than I did. So you were discouraged at the time to sell? I was definitely discouraged to sell. And... This crazy now, looking back, that, you know, selling the company for $200 million would have been considered disappointing. But back at that time, it would have. Hmm. So I did not succeed in convincing the investors to sell the company. Then the bubble burst. And I mean, I mean, essentially, had you sold the company in 99, you probably could have possibly sold it for $200 million. I think Evite sold for, I don't know, around... Forty million or something like that. Maybe even less than, than forty. Maybe even million, less. But yeah. yeah, a lot less. And yeah. your objective, I guess, as a, a young CEO at the time, was to you felt like you had a responsibility to at least make good with the investors that they would not lose money. They weren't going to make money, but they weren't going to lose money. That was my my number one obligation. I felt was yeah. to get my investors as much of their money back as possible, and of course, my employees as well. Sure. You know, you want your employees to land well and. Um, in hindsight, 
economic cycles come and go. Recessions happen. And we had cash in the bank. So we could have rode out the storm and the company would have been more worth more later. And mm-hmm. we would have actually served all of our stakeholders, our employees and, and our investors better, actually, if we had uh, held on longer. And I, I take responsibility for that. I think that was my fault uh, <laughs> for just not having enough wisdom and experience. <laughs> All right, your time at Evite ends, and um, you sort of spent um, a little bit of time working at a, a private equity firm for for a little bit, and eventually you would go on to work with a subsidiary of eBay. Um, how did that happen? So one of my angel investors in Evite was a guy named Gil Pencina, and Gil Pencina was, I think, employee number 17 at eBay. So as soon as we sold Evite, Gil started calling and saying, come work for eBay, come work for eBay. And he called and said, why don't you come and work interna- in our international team? We'll send you abroad and you'll run eBay, one of eBay's businesses in some far-flung country. Hmm. And I was newly married with no kids. So I joined eBay with the notion that they could send me anywhere in the world and I would run you know, the eBay of that country. And I argued for China and Meg Whitman, who was the CEO at the time, to paraphrase her, said, no way, kid. I just met you and there's no way I'm going to give you China. <laughs> Let's see what you can do with the Netherlands. Wow. And so I got shipped off to Amsterdam to turn around what was our Dutch business. And the Dutch business was really underperforming. Hmm. All the eBay businesses were growing really quickly at the time. And the eBay business in the Netherlands was was completely flat, and we couldn't figure out what was going on there. So I was sent to to fix it. Well, and wh- I mean, why was it flat? What was the problem? It, it turns out that we were losing to a local competitor called Marktplatz, which <laughs> is a classified site. It's the Craigslist of the Netherlands. Huh. And it was incredibly successful in the Netherlands. And yet eBay had competed against many different classified businesses in the United States. So Microsoft had a classified business, Yahoo had a classified business, Excite had a classified business, and eBay had come to the conclusion that classifieds didn't work. In fact, in the Dutch office, my team had been told they're not allowed to mention the word Marktplatz. (laughs) So they referred to it as the company. and I got introduced to this because I, I, you know, I land in Amsterdam and I get in the cab and I immediately start talking with the cab driver. And he says, why are you here? And I said, I work for eBay. And he'd never heard of eBay. And I said, it's a place where you can buy and sell things. And he goes, ah, like Marktplatz. <laughs> and everyone in the Netherlands knew Marktplatz. So I had my team do a bunch of quick and dirty research to compare Mark Plots to eBay. So I had everyone in the office bring in five things and list them for sale on eBay and list them for sale on Mark Plots and see which one did better. And in two different instances, in the time it took to list it on eBay, they had already sold it on Mark Plots. Wow. And we were able to go and show Meg Whitman um, data if you were someone who lived in the Netherlands, you were better off using Markplatz than eBay. It was just a huh. better product. You, you you were showing her this because, because what you 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 thought? Hey, we should acquire Markplatz. We should buy this thing. I thought we should buy Markplatz. <laughs> I thought it was a better product than ours. I thought eBay was a great place for cross-border trade. So if you had things that are small and light, like a coin, then you could market it to the world using eBay. But if you had other things that you wanted to sell um, that were domestic, things you'd sell domestically like a bike, 
um, you were much better off using Marktplatz. So the reason that the eBay business in the Netherlands looked flat is that we were actually running two businesses simultaneously. We were running a cross-border business, which was thriving, and we were running a domestic business, which was declining. And when you add it all up, it looked like we were running one business that was flat. <laughs> so we you know, dug into the data, and within you know, a few weeks, we had pulled together what what I thought was a pretty compelling case for why, you know, maybe classifieds doesn't work all around the world, but I'm telling you it works here. And this business, Mark Plotz, is a great business. Yeah. And a two-hour session with Meg convinced her that, that Mark Plotz worked. <laughs> and Meg, to her credit, said, in that case, we need to win in classified. So, Josh, you now have a new job. You are in charge of our European classified business. <laughs> Go back to Europe and win in classifieds across all of Europe. So in a period of 90 days, we bought Mark Plotz. I, my team and I, we bought Gumtree in the UK, and we bought uh, the leader in Spain, which is a little company called Loquo, based in Barcelona. Wow. So when you started to buy all these classified companies, was there an immediate change in revenue? I mean, was, there, was, was eBay all of a sudden were its fortunes in Europe? starting to turn around quickly? Well, um, you know, these businesses collectively were a tiny fraction of eBay's business mm. across all of Europe. But in the Netherlands, Marktplatz was very sizable by um, in terms of the total sales on the platform. But in terms of revenue, at the time that we bought Marktplatz, it had 10 million euros of revenue and 5 million euros of profit. And we paid, I think, 290 million euros for mm. the business. So... What happened, though, was when we bought Mark Plotz and we paid that price, I think it was the largest acquisition that had been done in the Netherlands in a really long time. The leading media company in the Netherlands, which is called The Telegraph, they suddenly faced an uproar from their shareholders saying, how did you let eBay buy Mark Plotz? Why didn't you buy Mark Plotz? And, you know, it turned out back then, um, newspapers earned most of their profit from their classified section. So the Telegraph made it their mission in life to beat Marktplatz. So they built a site that looked just like Marktplatz but was better. It had no fees, where Marktplatz charged some fees. Wow. And they launched on the first day with one million listings because they aggregated all the listings from all of their different um, newspapers. And then they took every unsold television spot, every unsold print ad, (laughs) and they blanketed the media in the Netherlands. We were about six months away from losing. Wow. The, this competitor called Spurters was growing much faster than Mark Plotz. And in that space, if you don't win, you lose. <laughs> to have to deliver that message was terrifying. Meg was actually, um, you know, she, she said, you, you only have one job now, and that's to win in the Netherlands. But that was the scariest professional moment of my life. Wow. And I really thought my career is completely on the line. And I remember really reflecting on how it was all going to kind of come down to this. And I called my team together on Monday morning, and I said, remember all the conversations we've had about career development and, you know, people wanting to explore this and that? None of that matters right now. The <laughs> only thing that matters is us beating spurters. So, Oscar, you own this metric. Martine, you own that metric. Bob, you own that metric. I said, you have two weeks to come back to me with a plan on how you're going to win. <laughs> And the team did an amazing job coming back with really 
bold, courageous ideas. And we executed like crazy for six months. We really transformed mark plots from something that was good to something that was great. Eventually, Spurters exited the market completely, and Mark Plotz has grown and grown and been a, a tremendous success. And that's really, you know, one of the proudest achievements of my career, but it also informed so much of what I ended up doing later. You were, I mean, at this point, you know, with the success of Mark Plotz, this, this was, I think, around 2008, you were sent to oversee Skype, become the CEO of Skype. Yes, and um, at the time, like 2005, eBay bought Skype for like $2.5 billion. And this was a pretty controversial acquisition because it, there wasn't, it wasn't clear that Skype was actually a, a, a good acquisition in 2008, right? Yeah. I mean, so I had by that time formed a reputation as the person who went and fixed the things eBay bought that were broken and they didn't know what to do with. They paid a lot of money. I think it was $2.9 billion. Yeah. So eBay needed someone to go run the company. <laughs> and everybody told me not to take the job <laughs> for a whole bunch of reasons. You know, that, that Skype is in the telecommunications industry. It's about free phone calls at a time when calls are going to zero anyway. Culturally, the company was really fraught. It was, um, you know, geographically uh, dispersed all around the world. And there were just lots and lots of challenges. But I felt like, you know, what Skype does for the world is really meaningful. It's really important. Skype's about being together when you can't be in the same room. And that mission is much more powerful than the whole world can talk for free. And if we're about being together, it's about way more than phone calls. So we pivoted the company to be ab about video calling. And that really uh, opened the next chapter for for Skype. We, we did two big pivots. One was going from phone to to video. And it's not that Skype doesn't do phone calls, but we made video calling the centerpiece of Skype. And second was launching on the iPhone, which was a brand new product. And and that ended up unleashing a ton of growth for, for Skype. The story there maybe is kind of interesting. Yeah. Can I tell a, a quick story there? Please. All right. So <clears throat> Meg Whitman had told the market that Skype 4.0 was going to be the future of Skype, that Skype 4.0 was going to be transformative. And so I flew to Europe. I took the job for Skype, really excited to see what the Skype 4.0 thing was. And um, I get the all the leaders of Skype 4.0 in a room together. My first day, I call the product manager, the head of design, the head of engineering, the head of quality. I get them all together, and I ask them one question. What are we solving for hmm. in Skype 4.0? And I've got seven people, I hear seven different answers. And it turns out the prior leaders, had, they, they thought they were going to make money on Skype by selling ads, and so they'd created a larger format. Instead of Skype being this little, tiny, narrow thing that took up only a little bit of your screen real estate, it was suddenly going to take up your whole screen. Hmm. So, you know, I think Skype was evenly split. Half of the company thought that we couldn't ship 4.0, that we were so dysfunctional, that our teams were so um, at each other that we weren't going to be able to get anything out the door. The other half thought that it, we shouldn't ship it because it was an absolutely terrible idea and it was going to kill the company. <laughs> so half thought we couldn't ship it and half thought we shouldn't ship it. So I ended up writing a one-paragraph mission statement for the team um, that said the mission of Skype 4.0 is to drive engagement. And that you know, one-paragraph mission statement gave the leaders enough clarity about what success looked like and what the constraints were 
gave the team then enough structure, but they had a lot of opportunity to still innovate on how they were going to achieve that mission. <laughs> and they ended up shipping Skype 4.0, which frankly saved the company. Yeah. Um, I think that they, they eventually sold it to Microsoft for like $8.5 billion. Right. In 2011, which is a pretty good, pretty good return on that two and a half billion dollar investment six years earlier. Yeah, yeah. Particularly when you think that the financial crisis sat right in the middle of that. Yeah. Um, I know that you would go on to spend four years at American Express, but I want to um, want to talk about Etsy because, um, first of all, can you tell me what what was going on at Etsy? Like, what were the circumstances under which you became the CEO. How did you get involved? Yeah. So I joined the board of Etsy. I thought maybe I could be helpful. And what was happening at Etsy was that our, our gross merchandise sales had been decelerating quarter after quarter, year after year for, for three years in a row. And gross merchandise sales is the, is the sum of all the products sold mm. on Etsy. And the, the growth rates had been decelerating and decelerating. Um, you know, I think the management team had come to the conclusion that Etsy is about as big as it can be. Uh, hmm. We are we are most of the market for handmade product, and so I guess we should go get into other businesses. And so that wasn't going well, uh, to say the least. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. Well, let me try to understand this for a sec, because Etsy, 
most people who've, who've used Etsy love it, right? It's just yes. it's awesome. It's like uh, it's like going to a, an artisan's market, except it's online. Yes. So what was going on in 2017? Why? I mean, because from what I understand, like the stock price was like ten bucks. Um, the company was like losing money every quarter. What? I mean, was it just were people just not using it? What What was going on? Yeah, so you're right that people love the product on Etsy, and 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 that's the most important thing, right? Is that it does what it says on the tin. So if you talk to people who've just bought something on Etsy and you ask them what do you think, they love the product that just arrived in the mail, and they love the connection, the communication that they had with the seller. They get a handwritten note. The product was made just for them. It's it's a wonderful, it's amazing thing. Yeah, right? yeah. But yeah. the company. Um, was really unfocused. So what was happening was there was a lot of activity but not headed in one direction that wasn't adding up to making the product experience better in a meaningful way and then communicating that out to the market. Hmm. And to give you just some examples of that, um, you know, there's there's over 60 million items for sale on Etsy. Wow. So that's a lot, um, you know, to, to draw a picture in your mind. There's 200,000 coasters for sale on Etsy. 200,000 coasters? Yes. Like for drinks, right? Yeah. So if you were to sit in the middle of the University of Michigan Stadium and look around, every seat <laughs> would have two sets of coasters. <laughs> that's how many coasters there are for sale on Etsy. Wow. And the challenge for our engineering team is we've got to pick the 30 that should go on the first page of search results for you. (laughs) That is a massive challenge. And if you talk to our sellers, they'll tell you two things. They'll say, one, they're really unhappy with search and they think the quality of it is not good enough. And two, don't you dare change the search engine. (laughs) And they mean both things equally. And they'll often say them in the same sentence, right? Um, You know, change is disruptive and it means work for them and it can be a little scary. But if you don't change, the world passes you by. That's a lesson that I learned in spades at eBay. Um, You know, the world was passing us by and we were quickly becoming irrelevant. In spite of the fact there's wonderful products for sale on Etsy from amazing sellers who do amazing work. So uh, when I arrived, our stock was at $10. We had $2.50 a share of cash in the bank. You know, and we had a lot of people circling. I would have assigned maybe a 10% chance at that point to the, the, the likelihood that we could remain an independent company. In, in other words, because of your financial situation, the chances that you would be forced to sell were high? Yes. I mean, you know, if you're if you're on the board of a public company, the safe thing to do is to sell take for double the, money. the current sure. stock price. You take the money and that's safe and yeah. no one can ever criticize you. Yeah. And so in 2017, and it's hard to believe, um, Etsy was, was that close to being bought at a fire sale price. Right. I mean, the board, the board comes to you and says, hey, we want you to run this company. Stock prices, again, it's, the stock price is at $10. The vultures are circling overhead, <laughs> and, um, yeah. and and so what do you like? You don't have a lot of time. It's May 2017. What do you do? So the first thing I brought to the company on day one was a belief that there was only one metric that mattered, and that was gross merchandise sales. Because gross merchandise sales is the sum of our success. It's the size of the pie. It's our customers winning. It's basically the dollar value of everything sold on Etsy. Exactly. 
They weren't measuring that as a measure of success? I have to assume they were measuring that. Etsy was absolutely measuring that. And there were, you know, 10 or 12 metrics that Etsy was focused on, and this was one of them. And the challenge with that is if there's 10 or 12 metrics that you think are important and you're focusing on all 10 or 12, any idea that can ladder up to any one of those 10 metrics is something you can do. And that's way too low a bar. So instead, I challenged the team with what are the fewest things we need to do well in order to succeed? What are the fewest things we need to do well? I call it the vital few versus the worthwhile many. There's 150 things you could do, and they're good ideas, and they're strategically aligned, and they have a positive ROI, and you'd be proud to stand in front of your board of directors and, and explain it. And if you try to do all 150, you're dead in the water. So that's the worthwhile many. The vital few are the, f- the few you're going to pick, the three, the four, the five, you're going to pick that you're going to actually do with excellence. Hmm. And that's the difference, I think, between success and failure. In order to do that, though, you need to be able to decide what are the vital few. And so I want things that are going to have at least an incremental $10 million of GMS within 24 months. I won't even look at anything that doesn't meet that bar. And it's not that I don't care about things that take more than 24 months to come to fruition, but we at that time hadn't earned the right to be focusing a lot of resource on things that would take years and years to pay off. And so I asked the product and the marketing teams, give me an inventory of everything we're working on. It turned out we had about 800 projects in flight in in the company. We had about 1,000 employees, 800 projects. Wow. Of those, less than 40% had any meaningful chance at all of moving GMS by any meaningful number in the next 24 months. So um, we cut over 60% of everything we were doing by the end of my second week inside the company. And that was extremely painful. And I mean, to give you some color, the team had come up with an idea called Etsy Studio. And Etsy Studio is a really good idea. It's a marketplace for craft supplies. And since so many people who love crafting are on Etsy, it would make sense that you'd have a marketplace for craft supplies on Etsy. But they were going to build it – they had built it as a completely separate domain, a completely separate brand. Yeah. 150 people had worked for 18 months to launch Etsy Studio. I started on Tuesday. and I redirected everyone off the project on Friday. You killed the project on Friday. 150 people. 150 people for 18 months. For 18 months on this part. And and just to be clear, this idea was to create a marketplace for Etsy craftsmakers to purchase supplies through Etsy, right? More or less? Right. Beads or tools or things like that. Okay, great idea. Um, 150 people are spent 18 months on this project. You come in and you killed the project on Friday. Yes. Wow, I mean that—that's a pretty big risk. You are essentially alienating 150 people overnight, right? It's worse than that, actually, <laughs> because um, you know Chad, who was the CEO before me, is a wonderful person. Chad Dickerson is a wonderful person and um, is a very talented leader and has a huge heart. Before I started, Chad called the entire company together in late, late afternoon and said, "I've just been fired. Eighty of you are fired," and. Um, there's going to be a new CEO starting tomorrow. His name is Josh. You're going to love him. Wow. So that was my first day. Wait, so was, be, be, was that that it was sort of announced the day before that the CEO was gone. 80 people had been laid off. 
and then you come, you show up and you say, hello, I'm here. And, and what, do you have like an all staff meeting, like a town hall to introduce yourself? I did. And were I people did. freaked out? Yes, I think that's a fair description. And what did you say in that town hall meeting? I said that we have a responsibility that's bigger than ourselves, that two million people wake up every day counting on Etsy. You want to know why politics are fraught right now? It's because life's hard. And our sellers don't have great 401k plans and farm-to-table lunch catered on Tuesdays and, you know, yoga breathing rooms and all the wonderful benefits that come with being a tech employee in this world. They've got to wake up and earn it every single day. And we have the privilege to serve them. And that means we've got to hold ourselves to a higher standard. And we all have empathy for the 1,000 people that are lucky enough to work for Etsy, but we've got to have empathy for the 2 million people who count on us. And so in my very first day, I said, we're going to do a lot of hard things. We're going to move fast. And if we haven't done enough hard things, we're not going to win, and we're going to fail them. And the only conversation people are going to have about Etsy is, why did it fail? (laughs) And you all have worked too hard for too long to have that be the conversation about Etsy. Hmm. So the next couple of years are going to be the time we will all look back on and either be proud of or regret. And how are we going to show up? Wow. All right. So you are asked to take over. How did you, I mean, did you have to come up with a plan to restructure to save the company quickly? Or did the board have a plan, you know, an off-the-shelf plan for you to, to execute? No, no, the board did not have a plan, and I didn't have a plan on day one. What I had was a knowledge that there was one thing that mattered, which is gross merchandise sales. And I had a team of talented people who I had just inherited. I didn't know them, and they didn't know me. Mm. But if you give a team of talented people clarity on what success looks like and what the constraints are, it's amazing what they can do. We identified 26 projects— that were projects that we thought had a material chance of impacting gross merchandise sales right away. Hmm. And those I called the ambulances um, because when an ambulance drives down the road, everything else gets out of the way. And it wasn't all very sexy work. Um, So, for example, one of those ambulances that really worked was uh, we had this insight that people didn't necessarily trust Etsy with their credit cards because they weren't sure if we were giving their credit card number to the seller. So if I give Etsy my credit card number, is it going to some person that I've never met, you know? And um, and so simply adding language that reassures buyers that um, that we don't share their credit card information with the sellers had a meaningful impact on conversion rate and drove more GMS. Hmm. Um, And what was the reaction? I mean, did you say to them, "We have to do this. We have no choice. Like we will not survive unless we do this." After a few months, it really started after even candidly after six weeks, some of these projects that we raced to market, these ambulances started to have an almost immediate impact on growth. And that's what allowed me to go to the board and tell the board, give me time. This is working. I don't want to sell the company yet. Let's give me time and let's see if we can actually make this work. And the board was courageous and said, we're going to give you that time. But the employees, there was still this sort of hangdog atmosphere in the Mm. air where people were really like, this feels so hard. This feels so abrupt. Why Mm. do you need to change everyone's job? And we had this catalytic moment where I I called the whole team together and 
it was just sort of radical transparency of this is the situation that we've been facing, hmm. you know. And nobody knew? People didn't know? People did not know that we were on the verge of having getting bought. No. You know, and your lawyers are going to tell you, you know, when you're, when you're a public company, you know, how much are you really allowed to say and yeah, who are you allowed sure. to disclose to? And there's actually a lot of legitimate concerns as a public company about sharing things with a thousand people. Yeah. But – you know, the more transparent you can be, well, at least in my case, um, really being very real and telling the team, this is what's at stake. The alternative to success right now is abject failure. And that was very clarifying, where I think people suddenly got more context and understood why we'd had to do so many hard things so fast. Hmm. How about the internal culture at Etsy? I have to assume, even though you, by that by the time you arrived, there were almost a thousand employees, there was still kind of a small company feel or company culture. Um, you know, I, I sort of liken this to um, when, when an outside leader comes into a company with a strong culture. It's like someone getting a liver transplant. You know, you need the new liver, but your body's going to do everything to reject it, right? Yeah. Um, is that the feeling you got? I think that as a leader, you know, um, if you're authentic to who you are and if your values align with the company's values, they're going to figure it out. I think that the the message when I came in was was the, the external narrative was that somehow Etsy was giving up on being a good citizen in order to be a better business. And I passionately believe that businesses can be great citizens. And in being great citizens, we can make the pie better for everyone and be great businesses. You know, Etsy, um, economic empowerment is our day job. We exist to provide a path to economic empowerment for our creators, for our makers. 2.3 million sellers as of today, 87% of whom are women, 91% of whom are businesses of one. Hmm running a global business from their living room. And if Etsy wasn't there to do that mission, we would leave a giant hole in the lives of all of these people all around the world. So we've got to show up and be amazing at that mission. And that is a social mission. And we believe we can do that with zero carbon. We are now the first e-commerce site of any scale that's 100% carbon neutral, including offsetting all of our shipping. Wow. And we believe that we will be more effective at that if we have an unusually diverse workforce. 37% of our engineers are women, 67% of our executive team are women, 50% of our board are women, and we're making progress on underrepresented minorities. So, you know, we take really seriously um, the, the citizenship piece, and I'm really proud of the progress that we've made in parallel with the strong financial results. Hmm. Etsy is like a shopping mall, right? All of those sellers have a storefront in a shopping mall. And in a shopping mall, you charge rent, and that's how the mall makes money. The way Etsy makes money is you charge a, a commission, a fee off every sale. And at one point, it was like 3.5%, and then it went up in 2018 to 5%. And, I mean, there, there were sellers who were mad about this. You said, that's too yeah. much. Yeah. I mean, how did you explain your position to them? Because, you know, that's – I mean – you need those sellers. They need you to promote their products and to be this platform. But but you also need them um, to sell great things on your platform. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really important that we make decisions with data, not dogma. 
And there was, I think, a dogmatic belief inside of Etsy around this 3.5% commission as being, you know, somehow— Untouchable. Uh, you know, untouchable. Hmm. And I think 35 commission was always a really bad idea, and it was always a disservice to our sellers. Um, three and a half percent is such a low commission that it doesn't allow Etsy the firepower to go invest in marketing. Our sellers don't want a storefront. They want buyers. There's a lot of places they can go open up a storefront and have no buyers. <laughs> and that's worse than nothing, right? Now you've invested time and energy right. to not reach, achieve a good outcome. What we offer is we offer buyers and lots of them and buyers who actually value the things that they make. So when we raised our commission from 35 to 5%, we went from being far cheaper than all of our com competition to being cheaper than all of our competition. We are still tremendous value in the market. And we communicated back to our sellers that we're going to be reinvesting the substantial majority of that money back into you in the form of marketing, in the form of better customer support, and in the form of better tools. And we don't get paid unless they get paid. I think that's really fair, and I think our sellers find that really fair. Is a company like Amazon today seen as a threat, or, or is that feeling past? You know, I think able, Amazon sets uh, expectations for shoppers around the world for what um, good looks like in e-commerce. Sure. They are a foil against which we are always measured. For example, we've had a big push around uh, free shipping on Etsy. Now, let's be clear. There's no such thing as free shipping. There's no right. parcel service in the right. world that agrees to ship packages for free. <laughs> that doesn't exist, right? What's happened is the world seems to have decided that shipping should be a cost of goods sold that's included in one all-inclusive price together with raw materials and labor and, and other things. People don't want to be surprised at checkout with this add-on fee. So we're now moving to really encourage our sellers to bundle the shipping cost in with their item cost so that it's presented as, as free shipping to, to the buyers. It is not today, nor can I foresee a time, when all items on Etsy will arrive within two days. Yeah. Most items on Etsy are actually literally made for you. You order it from the maker, and she makes it for you, and she often personalizes or customizes it for you, and that's part of what we love most about Etsy. And that's fine. We're going to differ with intention from Amazon and others in that area. So I think it's understanding what the norms are and then, um, and then making choices. Hmm. When you think about, um, you know, sort of where Etsy is headed, right? I mean, there, there were some obviously major headwinds that you were facing when you arrived. But, um, you know, there was also, and not to say this is the reason, but there was, there's also been a pretty strong economy over the past few yep. years and consumer spending has been up and people feel um, comfortable sort of spending more disposable income. Um, what happens, you know, over the next two, three, four years if the, the headwinds, the economic headwinds become strong, really strong? What, what happens to, you know, to, 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 to Etsy? Yeah, I mean, you know, recessions happen. Um, it's not if, it's when. You know, so what we've been doing at Etsy is really talking about own things you care about. In a world that feels ever more disposable, buy things that actually mean something to you. And that's something that we hope will, you know, um, mean something today and will mean, you know, as much or more in, in a down cycle. Um, but what matters is what do our customers think? And when I spent time with Etsy buyers, 
What I heard over and over again was, and they never expressed it to me in quite this way, but Etsy's where I go when I wanted to feel special, when I wanted to express my sense of identity, <laughs> when I wanted to show how much I care about someone else mm. if I'm giving a gift. Etsy's about special. No one used the word handmade because it turns out handmade is not a purchase occasion. So when you look at what's bought and sold on Etsy, home furnishings, clothing, jewelry and accessories, wedding supplies, these are purchase occasions. And so I need to decorate my apartment. I need to buy a dress for the party. I want to give a gift to a friend. Mm. The reason why Etsy is differentiated is because if you buy it on Etsy, it'll be unique. It'll be made just for you. Etsy competes in a bunch of markets, and our differentiation is that we're handmade. And that, I think, was a really important realization hmm. and means the market opportunity for Etsy is enormous, and we are just beginning. Hmm. Um, Josh, when you when you think about your sort of you know the, the leadership lessons that you've learned along your journey, right? You were CEO of Evite at age 29, then you go work for eBay, and you're promoted, and you go head up Skype, and then this job at Amex, and, and then now Etsy, running Etsy. Um, what is your kind of North Star when it comes to leadership? What do you, how do you think about your role as a leader, especially with respect to the people who work for you? One thing I, I think I've gotten a lot better at over the years, and this is something Ken, Ken Chenault at American Express, mm -hmm. Ken talked about the role of a leader as defining success and defining constraints. Mm -hmm. And more and more I realize that's, that's the journey I've been on, and, and I've become more and more intentional about doing that and only that as a leader. What does success look like? Mm -hmm. How could... I measure that or tell the team how to measure that and what specific constraints do they have. That plus, of course, who do you have on the team? Do you have the right people with the right skills in the right place? Uh, I, I feel like I have come a really long way in my leadership journey. And if I met the 29-year-old who was running Evite, I would say back off, you know, I'm trying to solve way too many problems I'm not qualified to solve. If you've got the right people and you've been crystal clear about what success looks like and what the constraints are, they're going to innovate. They're going to come up with, with, with amazing solutions to get there. That's Josh Silverman, CEO of Etsy. By the way, Josh recently adopted an Australian Labradoodle puppy named Bonnie. And Bonnie wears an orange sweater made just for her. Purchased, of course, on Etsy. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary and Built It Productions. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 